Our guest today is quite the badass. I've been following his LinkedIn content for a while. And one thing that really stucks out to me about this gentleman is the amount of experience that he has creating outbound processes from scratch. And this guy just writes really good world-class LinkedIn content. But today, what we're going to be digging into is his cold email formula. And it's something that he uses to get double-digit reply rates. And he's got a framework and process that he follows for emails that are four sentences long. It's a very simple formula. I love it. I think you're going to dig it too. Before we dig into it, my name is Jason Bay. If you're listening to this podcast for the first time, welcome to Blissful Prospecting. I'm on a mission to help reps and sales teams turn complete strangers into paying customers. So we talk about everything from outbound and cold email, cold calling, that sort of stuff, to more sales-oriented topics, discovery, demos, closing, negotiation, objection handling, that sort of thing. Today, we're going to dig into email. We're going to be talking to my man, Florin Tetulia. He is head of sales development at Plato. So we're going to dig into a couple of things I think that you're really, really going to dig. So one of the things he talks about is sequence structure and setup, how to segment your sequences based on persona, product, or use case. By industry, we talk about the ideal sequence in terms of the number of steps over what period of time, how to use what he calls bursts, how to use bump emails, and then his structure that he's going to dig into, and it's four sentences. Imagine what you're sending right now if it was cut down to four sentences. And if you're listening to this, I don't know about you, there was quite the learning curve for me to get emails in that kind of sweet four-sentence, 60-to-80-word range. And we're going to talk about how to do that A-B testing and a whole bunch more. This is a master class on cold email. Before we get to the interview, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, so you can get notified when future episodes come out. And let's get to the interview with Florin. really curious with you because you talk about copywriting a lot. Have you taken any kind of formal training on copywriting or did you go to any classes on writing in university or college or anything like that? So I've never had like a formal copywriting course. Um, I always, I was always like quite good in English and like essay writing and just like, uh-huh. and explain my thoughts. So I, I enjoyed doing that. Um, and then just looking a lot at Dave Gearhart is someone that's a bit of an inspiration to me who used to be the VP of marketing at drift and the chief brand officer. I think now he's doing his own thing. Um, And then I started reading a few like copywriting books. Um, One of the main ones that uh, I looked at actually per Dave's suggestion was the, the copywriter's handbook. Mm -hmm. That was by Robert uh, W. Bly. The thing with cop, I think a lot of like copywriting books in general geared towards advertising from my experience, at least. Uh, And there's nothing wrong with that because I think there's a lot to learn from uh, marketing and advertising specifically in sales. But I think there, there needs to be a bit of a like bridge or someone needs to like fill the gap as to how like that specifically um, applies to like outbound, for example, like one of the main things is around uh, how to write really like catchy headlines and I feel like a lot of the advice about headlines 
if we used it in outbound, it would come across as like very marketing type of of subject lines that yeah. might not be open as much. So it's like kind of take things with a with a bit of a grain of salt and try to adapt it. Yeah, yeah. If you had a subject line that said ten ways to increase your closing <laughs> rates, it'd be, a little, <laughs> it'd be a little weird. Um, so how do you approach? Because you just started in is it Plato? Is that how you pronounce the company's name? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so at Plato. I think this could be a good example because you're what a couple months into the into building out the uh, outbound sales team there, right? What six months? I think if I looked correctly, how, how long you been there? Yeah, like roughly four and a half, almost five. Four and a half. So walk us through your process because the reason why I reached out to you, I've you know I said this to you, but I've just seen so much of your content and been like a big fan of your stuff and like especially around emails and writing and you put something up on your sequences and how they're going so far at Plato. And you're, you said something in there about, Oh, not too shabby or something. I was like, no, it's actually pretty good. I think if every sales development team had 10% plus reply rates <laughs> to their sequences, I think they'd be pretty happy dude. Cause in reality, it's more like 1% or less, you know, for most sales teams. But how did you approach? Like if we just start from scratch here at the beginning, how did you approach messaging there? Did you come in and did they have some stuff for you to work with? Did you start from scratch? What was that process like for you? So, th- so there's never any outbound like department at Plato before. They did some like email drip campaigns on the marketing side, but really like the first thing I'm doing when I'm going in is under like a ton of of interviews with like everyone at the company, especially people in sales and marketing, um, the founders, uh, the executive team. And specifically, uh, the team that essentially we're, we would be targeting. So at Plato, we're reaching out to engineering and product teams. So I made sure that I sat down with like the head of engineering, for example, and we did like an interview around like, okay, what do you, you know, what do you think about on a day-to-day basis? Like, what are the main problems that you're trying to solve generally? Um, and it can be pretty generic in the beginning because I never sold to engineering or product. So I, the first thing I'm doing is like, I want to understand your world. How do you get compensated? Like what are the biggest problems that engineers like have? Um, what are you thinking about right now? And then ultimately I think there's also some work around, like once you develop some initial messaging, there needs to be like feedback from whether it's the founders, like the head of engineering, other people in marketing, et cetera. So I'm not going to sit here and say that like right away, we just knew the the appropriate messaging. I still think like four and a half months in, we're still very much testing to see like what, what is actually uh, getting more responses and, and meetings booked and, and revenue ultimately. Yeah. Well, if we could, the interview piece I think is really interesting because that's, if I work with a consulting client, that's usually part of what I will do is customer interviews. And we've, find so many nuggets in those interviews that I'm like, they say that these things are important to them and you guys never talk about it. (laughs) You know, when you're doing these interviews, whether internally or talking to customers, what questions are you asking? Uh, Yeah. So I think especially internally, I try to like, like with the head of engineering, I'll get down to like, I actually want to understand how, how are you uh, compensated? Like you don't have to tell me your actual salary, but is there any kind of like a bonus? Like, is there something that, uh, you know, you're incentivized to do that? Maybe like we could tweak messaging around, uh, you know, that. 
or for example, specifically when we started at, at uh, I started at Plato, um, a big thing that came out was like retention was a top challenge. So I'm always asking like, what are you dealing with on a day-to-day basis? And I kind of hate that question generally when you're in a sales cycle, like what keeps you up at night? But I think you can get away with it if it's like an internal question to your department where you truly are just doing this to learn and you don't actually understand them at all yet. Yeah. So it could be basic stuff like that. And then what I even do too with customers, like even when we're on demos, if I notice we have a good relationship towards the end, I'll kind of try to keep it more casual and just be like, hey, like I'm still new here. Um what are, what are your honest thoughts about this? Like, I'm still trying to tweak messaging. Like, do you think the way that, I, you know, I pitch this makes sense? Um, and just try to be vulnerable and, and play that, uh, that newbie card. And I, and I tell my SDRs to do the exact same thing. I think like, especially if you're a few months in and prospects can see it on LinkedIn, you can play that card of like, Hey, I'm, I'm if, even if someone gets upset or whatever, it's like, Hey, uh, I'm totally sorry. That was not my intention. I'm actually still new here and I'm just trying to figure things out. And uh, it, usually it almost always disarms uh, any type of hostile like situation. Yeah. Asking for advice. It's such a simple thing that requires you to drop your ego though, which I think is tough sometimes. And there's the humiliation sometimes that you feel from being rejected. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that might, might make that a little tough. So you're really wanting to know the day-to-day The compensation question is interesting, you know, to under, I don't know. I don't know how, what an engineer is bonused on or, or what kind of KPIs is some, uh, someone like that might be, you know, measured on and like knowing those sort of things, understanding sort of the intrinsic motivation of the prospect, you're just kind of gathering all of these data points. It sounds like, so that when you go to create an email, or a sequence that you've incorporated five, 10, 15 data points into there of stuff that you you're likely to run across. One of those things is going to resonate. Yeah. So to kind of summarize, I think uh, if you're going to do an initial interview, it's like, what are the three biggest problems generally speaking uh, for, for, for you as a like head of engineering, but then more specifically, like to you personally, and I, I like to make the distinction between just like a general heads of engineering. Cause um, I, I tend to find that if you ask generally, people give you general advice, but it's like, no, like specifically to you right now, what's, uh, what are you dealing with? Mm-hmm. Uh, and do you think that's common across like everyone in this type of role? Then co- compensation, just because I think money is a big motivator and like it, it kind of sways people's decision, especially if like a certain decision is tied to how you're going to get compensated, feed your family, all that stuff. And then like KPIs, generally speaking, like what is your performance measured on? Um, again, all basic stuff, but I, I don't think a lot of people take enough time to do that type of uh, interview up front with customers, but also like internally as well. Yeah. So did you find that as you've gone through this and just in your experience in general, how close, if you were to have 10 conversations, how closely related are the problems between those 10 people, assuming that they're at similar kinds of companies and that sort of thing? I would say like pretty, pretty similar. Like, Crazy, huh? yeah, it's, it's actually, it's yeah. like everyone's talking, but they're not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And the one, a big one that surfaced up uh, in engineering specifically was, 
just like hiring and retention at like, and this was kind of before the economic downturn a little bit, but it's just such a like fierce battle for, for competition. So if that's a top three problem that literally came up with every single person we talked to, well, first you have to ask yourself, is there uh, can your product or solution actually help with that? Yeah. And I think like, if it can't, that's okay. Be honest with yourself about that. Don't try to spin uh, you know, your product or solution into somehow helping with retention. That's like a huge stretch. Um, and specifically with like engineering and product teams, I tend to find that they're much more to the point. They don't uh, like BS uh, and they can tell very quickly if like you're, if you are BSing them. So you just want to be upfront. Yeah. So this is kind of the foundation of the copywriting approaches, I really need to understand and know my audience and the people that this is going to. Is there anything else before we kind of move, keep moving here around what you do to really understand and put yourself in the seat of the prospect? Yeah, I think that that's the main thing. And I think a lot of people make a mistake on onboarding where you focus, like, especially for salespeople, you focus too much on the product or the solution that you're selling. And it's not enough time actually on understanding your, your buyer. And one thing I even told my team, it's like, you want to know how they think you want to know, like how they make decisions, like where they go to, to get advice and like have chats, what kind of memes they like, what kind of jokes they talk about, what acronyms they use. And it's like, if you understand that, I think a lot of the rest can kind of happen more automatically as opposed to you really understanding your solution. And I, I, even there's a bunch of teams that are still getting like their SDRs, for example, to like do like mock demos or like be able to walk like a person through the platform in, a, in an onboarding where for me, it's like, let's scrap all of that. I actually think it's, it's probably worse in a sense, because the more you know about like features and functionality, the easier it is for you to rely on that and then go into rabbit holes on like a cold call or discovery. And it's like, it's not good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. What I almost think would be more useful is where you do role plays and you have the rep pretend to be a prospect and they're graded on how realistic of a prospect they can be down to the language and all that kind of stuff they use, you know? Um, Okay. So you did this work. So at Plato, who wrote the first set of email sequences? Did you write them? And what's like the very first step? What's the very first thing that you do to take all of this information and turn it into start to create a sequence? Yeah. So usually what I do, like we'll we'll have a few documents, like centralized documents. Let's say it's a Google doc where uh, I'm writing notes. So I essentially, when I started, I inherited someone that moved over to uh, the BDR team. So we kind of started at the same time. Uh, He had been selling to this persona at Plato for a while. So what we did, we just did a brainstorm of like, okay, here's like all the different interviews that we did. Let's look at our notes. What are the common themes? And then um, I use my experience from the past uh, to essentially lay out the frameworks for the sequences. So, I I mean, I've been studying like sequences and and looking at data and A-B testing for, for a long time. So I had an idea of how I wanted to structure it the, now the part was, okay, let's actually create the content. So we, we can go a bit deeper into like how I would design a sequence if you'd like. Let's do that actually. Yeah. Cause there, there are so many opinions on this and 
the data and the the data and the experience that I have, there's a lot of commonalities that I see across all of the advice out there. And I've tried to distill it down into something simple, but I'm always really curious, like someone like you that has a ton of experience, how you might approach creating a sequence from scratch. How do you, how do you structure it? How do you think about it? What are the important parts for you? So I think the the first step is figuring out, okay, like how are we actually going to set up sequences? Is it what, like one, do you have multiple products? Do you have multiple use cases? Do you have multiple personas that you sell to? Um, so, the, and I'll tell you the specific case for us. So at Plato, we, we only have like one solution or uh, let's call it a product, but we have multiple personas. So what made the most sense to me to at least try it in the beginning was, okay, we will reach out to engineering teams. We'll reach out to product teams or leaders and then uh, because we're a mentorship platform for engineering and product teams, learning and development in HR sometimes gets involved as well, uh, especially like later on in the sales cycle. So we said, okay, let's also try that. So the first step is like, how are you actually going to like target the sequences? So for us, it was persona based. Then it was like, okay, we have three sequences. Sorry for interrupting you. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Let's say that you guys had two products. Yeah. How would that change how you approach it? Uh, it might lead to us instead of, have, of having three sequences, potentially having six. Okay. Yeah. Uh, or uh, there's an, another case where maybe in one sequence per persona, you have different emails that talk about the different uh, products. Got it. Got it. And you're, okay. you're kind of telling a story across multiple products and seeing what sticks in a way. But what I actually recommend, especially if you have a pretty simple solution, is go persona-based to start. Um, or if like you're industry segmented, I think that's another thing that you might want to consider. And then, uh, so for us per persona and then multiple use cases, if you have them within that sequence per persona. Yeah. So again, to throw another curveball in here, if you had, oh, we sell this into, I don't know, just make up something insurance versus hospitals versus fintech, <laughs> you, you yeah. might have some industry-based stuff depending on what you're selling. I don't know if that applies necessarily to you, but that would be something you're thinking about in case the language perhaps that I speak to someone in insurance might be different than fintech, who's going to be much more worried about security, let's say, than... Yeah. Okay. I think my main advice, uh, especially in the beginning, is like, even, let's say you can sell to 10 industries. If I'm building a team from scratch, like I'm going to be like, okay, first of all, let's look at the data. Where are we winning the most? What's the low hanging fruit? And I don't think you need to start with 10 sequences right away for your 10 different industries. Focus on one or two so that like one of my pet peeves, and this has happened to me in the past when you like inherit teams, like I'll go in outreach or sales loft or whatever sales engagement platform you're using. And there's like, 100 200 sequences and then you're like one i have uh we have no data on what's actually working or not and then like everyone's just doing what they want um which is which for me is kind of a little bit chaotic because we don't actually know what's working this is the case most of the time with companies i work with yeah (laughs) that's something i've noticed as well and then it's like a shell sequence too. So it's like labeled as a certain persona, but people just plug in their own copy into yeah. it. <laughs> There's no measurable data at all that you can extract from it. 
Exactly. So what, one thing that I was super excited about coming here, not actually having inherited anything was that I knew that we could control like uh, how many sequences we had. We started with three sequences. That's it. Every single, and then I ended up hiring up to, I have six BDRs now to this day. Like we still only really use three active sequences at any given time. Uh, everyone's putting their, uh, uh, their prospects in there. And then we collect data way faster and we can adapt uh, way faster as well. And we actually know what's working and what's not. So how rigid are you with your reps on using the sequence? What parts, if any, can they customize? So my philosophy is that, so we, one, first of all, we will build the sequences together. I'm not the type of manager that's going to go and be like, this is the law. We're going to use the yeah. sequences and you can't change anything. I, I think like you may as well just somehow automate that. And you, you're essentially an email monkey in some sense, if like you can't make any customization. I think a, a true SDR salesperson should have the creativity. And that's where like people actually enjoy to do the job. You have the, uh, the freedom to to manipulate as needed based off of research and, and data that's coming to you on the front line. Yep. So my whole thing is like, let's all use the same sequences, but everyone's bought in because we built the sequences together, or at least you provided feedback and we all kind of okayed it. Um, and then it's up to you how you want to customize it. So we kind of leave like, um, there's a few prompts or like, you know, in brackets where it's like placeholders like customize as you see a fit, or we give us an example of a customization um, so that they have an idea of what they need to do. Yeah. Can you tell me more about that? And the reason why is that I've, one thing I love about consulting and training and coaching other teams is I get to see how so many different companies set this up. And some of the really cool ideas I've gotten are from people having just what you said, an example of something in action inside of the you know, cadence step or yeah. in example of a snippet and what that might look like or directions for what to put in there. Is there any of that kind of stuff, any tool tips, I guess, <laughs> that you build into the sequence? Like, is there any other types of stuff that you like to do like that? Yeah, it's more just like instructions. It's like, um, for example, I have like an email like framework or structure that we can also get into. The, the first sentence is usually like context or trigger. Like what's the reason that you're actually reaching out? So uh, we'll have like a placeholder that might say something like trigger uh, example. Uh, the most generic one is funding, which I actually don't like using, but uh, you know, call out uh, two people on their team that could, um, you know, that they're building their team around and mentorship could be helpful for, or like, um, for example, if you're reaching out to an SDR team, like calling out like a new person that joined the team specifically by name. Yeah. The, the only problem I tend to find with giving an example though, is people tend to over leverage to that exact example. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, but it's like, let's say you, and you, let's say you say funding, like uh, input here, what their series A was, or like do research on like the latest funding round people will almost always use funding as the trigger as opposed to like being creative and doing something else. So yeah. yeah. You got to pick the, in my experience, you got to pick the trigger that is the hardest one usually. And then provide an example with that. The funding one is so lazy. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> you know? Um, okay. So just to kind of backtrack a bit. So basically the way you're setting up and thinking about the sequences, because sequence design is such a 
both a science and an art, I think, you know, so you, you've approached it by persona and you guys got one product. So, Hey, let's start with three sequences from there. How do you think about the number of steps, the channels, how they work together, that kind of stuff? Yeah. So that the frequency and structure I I took from like uh, my last role. uh, And that was something that we kind of built out over multiple years. Uh, I'm still personally a big fan and we, I've tried a lot of different sequences. Generally speaking, the Egoji sequence for me tends to be um, one of the best ones, which I think was created by Sam Nelson at Outreach. You can correct me if I'm wrong about that. Um, but th- there's a few main principles of the Egoji sequence. So one, and, and this is specifically for outbound, by the way, not inbound. Just want to make that distinction because I think it's different. Um, at least 12 to 15 steps. Generally speaking, between 20 to 30 business days. And I think the main reason there is giving the prospect a chance to respond. Like you don't know if they're, you know, having a family crisis. Like you don't know if they're, you know, deep into some kind of like priority at work that they just can't focus on anything else. Maybe they're on vacation. So I think anything less than like a three plus week sequence is actually not giving the prospect uh, enough of a chance to get back to you. Yeah. Um, and then the, another big one is around having like bursts. So I'm, I'm a strong believer based off of like my AB tests and what, what I've read from other people that a multi-channel approach is key. Uh, I strongly recommend at least LinkedIn uh, email and phone calls to be in, in almost every sequence. Uh, and by bursts, I mean that you should have multi-touch point days. So uh, definitely on day one, I think it should be like three touches where it's like an email, a phone call, and some kind of uh, a LinkedIn touch. That could be different. I, I've experimented with like just a profile view that might give a notification, um, actually a connection request or maybe a follow or commenting or liking a post. Um, and then the sequences, at least the Goji sequence from what I found it, most people do tend to respond within the first week. So you want to make it a little bit more aggressive towards the beginning. So day one, just to recap three, three touches, take a break day three. We have another like three touches. Uh, and then you want to do another, maybe two touches on day five. So you're actually touching a prospect, uh, up to eight times in, in the first week. Now, it sounds kind of aggressive, but when you think about it, like LinkedIn touches are a lot of the times, especially if it's just like a like or uh, a profile view is not actually that intrusive. Yeah. So it would be, I want to ask you about the triple, I call them triple touches, but same sort of thing. Um, Sales Loft actually has a lot of data around, they analyzed their top 100 cadences and they found that 80% of them at least leverage a double touch, like phone call followed by an email. For the mechanics of that, I'm curious how you set it up in the sequence. Because again, this is a question I always get asked. In an ideal world, I think a rep calls, the person doesn't pick up, they leave a voicemail saying, I'm about to email you and the subject line is XYZ, bam, fire off an email, do a LinkedIn touch. That's not necessarily the most productive way to probably put, you know, for the uh, output of that activity though. How does that get executed typically like the mechanics of that in the sequence, how do you set up the triple touch and how close together are those touches typically? Yeah. So uh, usually the first 
touch is like LinkedIn. I don't actually, if you look at your sales engagement, like platform, I, I don't even include the LinkedIn touch in the actual sequence because okay. it, there's some, there's some like logistics around having, making sure that you actually put that person through that step. So it's yeah. more just like assume that if you, uh, if you're adding a prospect, you're going on their profile, you're like liking something or, you know, you're connecting with them or at the very least it's a profile view. So that's just almost like an inferred step on day one. Then we actually do it the opposite of what you talked about. So um, we actually would do an email first and then the call. So the way that this actually works out logistically, usually what happens is uh, a rep is scheduling their emails or because of the way that the schedule is set. Like towards the end of the day, you're, uh, you've already like technically submitted your emails to be sent in the morning. So we, we right now are sending them early, like six to 8 AM usually is the time window. And then when the rep is coming into work, the first thing they're doing is making the calls for all the emails that just got sent. Got it. And then, so they're basically queuing it up. So they're kind of doing these double touches without having to actually, because I think with a call block, that's the thing that's so important is that you get an hour of uninterrupted phone time so you can get 20 25 30 dials in or whatever it is to get your pickups the linkedin touches when do they do those uh as you're actually going and prospecting that person so got it so phone call task pops up i see linkedin profile i'm just kind of clicking liking doing whatever as i'm dialing yeah got it interesting okay so from there, I know the, the Agoji sequence is basically this a very similar kind of touch pattern each week for like three, four weeks after that. And it kind of slows down a bit. So instead of having maybe three phone calls in a week, maybe it's two. Instead of three emails in a week, maybe it's a couple. Like that sort of thing is it kind of taper off in weeks two and three. Yeah, it's definitely not as aggressive as the like six to eight steps in week one. Um, so if you were to think about like the actual breakdown, I'm going to try to help people visualize this. So essentially what you have is you'll have, uh, one email thread. That's like, uh, the, your first email that's like, should be like your best email. It's based off a specific use case, um, based off of the, of the framework it's personalized. Then you have like some kind of a bump up. Then you have a third step on that use case, that is a value add. You're not asking for anything because I'm a big believer that you only have so many asks before you have to give something. Uh, and that's all supplemented with calls and, and LinkedIn. Then uh, on, I think for us, it's day 10, you kind of start a new email thread. And that's use case number two, also personalized. So you're actually spending time on that email. It's manual. Then you're going back into uh, another bump up type of situation where you're reminding them of that uh, email and then another value add with no ask. So it's really six emails, two use cases, and then supplemented with calls uh, and LinkedIn touches throughout. And then you taper off towards the end a little bit. And we have, um, I, I don't really like, like the idea of a breakup email, but one that's been working okay with us that I think I got from Morgan J. Ingram back in the day was like, you know, throughout, through all this, I actually forgot to ask, like, are you the right person to be speaking with? Um, and that's kind of hovering around one or 2% reply rates as step 15. I'm personally okay with that. Yeah. 
bump emails. What are your thoughts on them? What's a typical bump email sound like? Because people tend to give bump emails a lot of shit. <laughs> when it, oftentimes it's the highest positive reply rate in the sequences, oftentimes that I the clients that I work on, but what are your thoughts on bumps? And yeah, I, I know, I know it's kind of controversial and I made a few posts about this and some people like don't agree with it. I also think that like thoughts question mark has worked really well. Uh, I literally in my sequences, I've seen the highest open and reply rates even. Mm-hmm. Um, I do kind of like the idea from Will Alfred uh, at Lavender where it's like a, maybe adding like a one sentence context just so that they can remember what it is about and they don't have to go to that first email. So for example, instead of just saying like thoughts uh, for us, because we're a mentorship platform, I might be like, Hey, um, Jason, you know, just like uh, curious to get your thoughts on, on, on mentorship for, and then like put somebody's name in there that like we already spoke with, uh, sorry, someone on their, on their team by name or something. Yep. But it's still the the concept and the principle there of a really short one liner, very easy to digest. I, I I the way I explain the thinking behind it is that I, I'm trying I'm not trying to overwhelm the prospect with too much content. Yeah, like because what you outlined is like one pretty solid email, a bump email, and then a piece of content, right? A value add. That's a, that's a pretty easy thing to digest as a prospect. I'm not sifting through a bunch of long emails and trying to figure out what the heck you you want from me. Yeah, exactly. Like three emails that are each, you know, three, four sentences. It's definitely a little bit overwhelming, especially if this person has no idea who you are. Uh, And I think sometimes we don't take into consideration the other person's perspective. And one thing when I became a manager, like when you started getting messages and you think about how busy you are and all your priorities, like you really start appreciating like very short to the point emails and ones that like call out. It's like, Hey, like if this is not a priority, let me know. And I'll literally stop bothering you. And it's like, okay, please stop bothering. You just respond. Cause like, you know, they won't respond to you anymore. Yeah. <laughs> There's something about brevity. I think that it's just so important. What about your email structure? So when you look at that first email, you have a structure behind it. You want to give us sort of the kind of framework behind that, how you think about writing the email and, if you could, you know what, Plato, especially because you wrote the first cold emails, it sounds like that they, that they sent how, what, what kind of thinking and all that kind of stuff went behind it. Yeah. So I, and I'm not going to say my framework's like revolutionary. I think a lot of the people like content creators or people on LinkedIn generally have something quite similar. And then maybe we just word things a little bit differently, but really for me, it's, it's four, it's a four sentence email. The first sentence is a trigger uh, or context as to why you're reaching out. Uh, so for example, for us at Plato, so we're, uh, again, a mentorship platform for engineering and product teams. So we match their like engineering leadership with a mentor that's one or two steps uh, ahead of them. So our trigger that's working really well for us right now, which also ties into the subject line is, hey, Jason, I noticed you're building your engineering team around X and Y. And what we'll do is we'll go find two directors or engineering managers on their team and call them out by name. So that's our trigger. Or another trigger that we might use is like going on their uh, LinkedIn jobs or on their website. It's like notice that you're hiring three engineering managers. That's that's another good trigger. Uh, second sentence is... Uh, 
highlighting the like uh, the problem with the current state and kind of prov- starting to provoke the cost of inaction a little bit. Um, so it's like, what's the problem with like, you know, hiring new managers um, and how do you tie that to like how Plato and mentorship can help? So it's like, one thing I can say is, you know, speaking with a lot of heads of engineering um, and, and, and teams that are growing fast, they tend to have very junior engineering managers um, and corporate training, generally speaking, is, is inadequate when, when we speak with them. So that's kind of framing the problem as to like, okay, you have new engineering managers coming through or you're um, promoting people that are, are relatively junior uh, in the management sphere. And then sentence three is uh, highlighting what the future is going to look like, the future state with Plato. Um, so that was just like a simple one sentence pitch on, on, on what you're doing. But in that sentence, I actually like to stay away from any type of like ROI or like using crazy percentage numbers or, or, or something that really sounds not believable. I like to tell a bit more of like a, a story. So this is a good time to use like a specific uh, case study or one sentence around like how you've helped a specific customer uh, in the past. And then finish off uh, fourth sentence, uh, interest-based CTA, which could be something as, would you be opposed to learning more? Yeah. Okay. You had a really, just a brilliant post on value props and how to talk about what you do. Do you have an example you could share for what a future state? And I guess the value prop is really the current state and the future state mixed together, but I'll let you comment on that. You had some, you have some interesting thoughts on value props that I really like. Yeah, it's like you, you kind of want to like highlight the outcomes. And I think an example I gave on my LinkedIn post was with Calendly. It's very easy to be like Calendly is like a, a system that helps you schedule like meet, meetings more seamlessly. Um, or you can be like, you know, with Calendly, um, imagine that you no longer have to go back and forth with someone over email and trying to figure out what time works. They can click your calendar and in two seconds, the meeting's booked stress-free. So that's like, I'm telling a bit more of a story. You can put yourself in, in that person's shoes and yeah. it's much easier to comprehend uh, what that is actually doing for you as opposed to being like, I saved 300% of my like of time on scheduling <laughs> meetings. Yeah. Tell me more about the story part. It's, it's something I've been talking to my clients a lot more about. And admittedly in my sales career was something I really had to work on. It just, it was not something that was taught to me and didn't really come naturally, you know, thinking about the story and that sort of stuff. You want to dig into that a little bit more? Yeah. Well, so first of all, I'm one thing that I think is important. And I talk to people about this in my workshops is like, why, why is a story? Why does it resonate with people? And uh, the, the reasons that it's actually a psychological thing, like human beings, our brains are wired uh, to learn things through story. Uh, and that starts from like the moment we're born. So if you think about like children's books, you think about uh, religion, mythology, anything that we're picking up early on in our life usually comes through some kind of a story and our brain is wired to understand it. So you want to kind of use that in your uh, your cold email so that people can understand concepts based off of how they naturally learn things anyways. 
Um, so usually like when you think about a story, it's like a beginning, middle, end. There's a climax and all that kind of stuff. So what I've been thinking about is like, how do you actually, um, how do you massage that for a cold email? Because you, you don't have time to do all of that, right? <laughs> so a, a, a really a story is, is very simply, what is wrong with the way that you're doing things today, the current state, and then the future state? What does the world look like? Um, with your, uh, you know, your solution. And I've, I've done this with, with founders, with C-level executives, with my teams. It's an exercise that I've seen take over two hours and just forming a story of two sentences. And it's like people, people, they've never even done it before. And it's kind of like shocking when you actually think about that, you can't tell the story of, of, of your your company or your, your solution in two sentences. Yeah. Your LinkedIn post is brilliant on that. You know, it's a, it's really revealing when the most tenured people at a company cannot do that, you know, and it just shows you the opportunity that we have. All of us in sales have to really dial in how we talk about what we do by telling it through a story that the person will understand. Cause every time I've done this in a sales call, especially you get and you do it well, or you get a reaction of, oh, wow. Yeah, that's totally me. Yeah. You know? And boom, you can accomplish that through a cold email. You can accomplish that on a cold call. And one way that I actually love telling stories and it works well uh, based off of data on emails, it's it's in three bullet points usually. And I normally hate bullet points in emails, but it's it's not the bullet points that is the problem. It's the fact that people are using bullet points to explain features or functionalities usually. I like to almost tell a story and use uh, provoke, like not provocative, but uh, emotionally charged words. So for example, when we were selling RFP response software at Lupio and I was reaching out to a sale, like a salesperson or, or like a proposal manager, it's like, um, you know, let me know if any of this resonates with you. It's like you're, you're late up once you're up late once again on the weekend responding to a 300 page RFP and you're wondering why you're doing it. Um, you have 50 RFPs that you're going through and you know, you've answered this before, but you can't find that one answer. Um, and you like, you're, you know, you're working into the evenings, not being able to spend time with your family. Now that's a bit longer than I would actually put the copy in an email. But if I, if I use those, like, those words, like staying up late once again, you have 50 documents and you can't find it. People yeah. know that I understand their world and I'm telling them the story that they're living. And it tends to resonate really well with people. And uh, that's why it works. Yeah. Ah, dude, I love that, man. I love how simple it is too. Trigger, current state, future state, CTA. So... Do you ever find in your workshops another thing that I see reps run into? I only really see this in enterprise and more strategic type situations, but the above the line versus below the line folks, there just is such a difference between them. The bigger the company, the bigger the difference between a VP and a manager. You know, VP had a person, a company with a hundred people, VP of sales versus a sales manager. They're probably interacting a lot on a regular basis. Versus 2,000, 5,000 people. And you got like a senior vice president that's so far removed from using the solution. Yet these are the people that we want to start conversations with. 
do you have any advice or do you ever run into helping reps understand how much different it is what these people care about their current versus future state versus someone that's more using, you know, the solution. Do you talk about that much? Yeah. And it's, you're, you're absolutely correct. It's like very, very different. And um, so one of the ways I kind of coach on that, and we're going through this right now in my company, I'm teaching them how to really read like 10 K reports or or annual reports, especially for public companies. When you think about an SVP and the problems that they're, they're worried about and how they're compensated and incentivized, they're like, they're thinking about the highest level stuff, which is usually what is going to be highlighted in those 10 K reports. And if you do a good job, you should be able to like control find and like, you know, search for goals, initiatives. There's certain sections around like the business risk factors. Like those are usually th- any company's working on three main things at any given on any given year, three main initiatives. So those are the things the SVP it, uh, cares about and is going to uh, you know resonate with. When you're thinking about like a sales manager, that's very much more of like I don't even think it makes sense necessarily to get down to that level. It's more talking to that person. Um, personally. And the example I just gave you with the the RFP response story of like staying up uh, late once again, that would be more to a lower level manager. That's like, you know, either they are working on RFPs or like their reps directly are working on RFPs and are complaining to them. That message is actually not the right message for the SVP. The SVP, I need to like prove to them why like in their 10K report, they want to focus on sales efficiency and I need to make the link between how uh, increasing uh, the quality of your RFPs and the less time you spend on it is going to affect the actual bottom line. The sales manager doesn't necessarily care about the bottom line. Yeah. What would that message sort of roughly sound like then to someone more senior? Um, actually, I also one of my, ma- my most uh, liked posts on LinkedIn, which is in my featured section, if anybody wants to check it out, was from a, a rep at uh, Lupio that reached out to a Fortune 50 CEO uh, and got fantastic praise. So what literally what he did, the trigger was like, hey, I just uh, listened to your earnings, your Q2 or whatever earnings call. Congrats on uh, X contract. I forgot what the name was. Um I noticed that you mentioned, uh, and I forgot he quoted exactly what the CEO said, and it was something about like increasing sales efficiency. And then the next sentence was with Lupio, that's actually exactly what we can help your team with. And then gave like a bit of a story about uh, um, like a sentence from a case study of a similar customer. And uh, that literally got a response from someone that you would never would think would respond to a cold email. Yeah. It's amazing how if you can speak like an executive, I find that executives are so much easier to prospect to. Breaking through in an email is a little bit tough, but especially when you can get someone like that on the phone and you can show right off the top that you did your research, it's such a refreshing thing for most of these folks. 100%. I think the other thing I want to tell folks too is like, I think people think that very high level executives at enterprise companies like don't look through their email or their EAs, uh, executive assistants are just like doing all of it for them. It's simply not true. Like these people do check their emails. They're human beings. They have it on their phone. They get the notifications. 
Um, they probably don't get as many emails as you actually think. It's not like the CEO of uh, whatever Fortune 50 company yeah. is getting like 10,000 emails a day. It's, it's not happening. Yeah. Um, so email and even this, like I met uh, Henry, the CEO of ZoomInfo in Barcelona. He told me yeah. to send him an email. I sent him like an, an email like I didn't CC anyone. I just had my own little subject line and stuff. He responded like he's clearly opening his email. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I interviewed him on the podcast and one of the biggest things he shared, the lessons I got from that was he just reiterated so much because I asked him, you know, what's it like when you're a prospect, you know, when you have to hop on a call with a rep because someone's trying to sell something really big to zoom info. He said the number one thing that's disappoints him the most is when I don't learn something from that call. I want to know what best in class companies are using your product and how they're doing it and how we could skip a couple steps, <laughs> you know, and that insight through that customer story or whatever it might be is that's just all these people want to know. It really doesn't take much, you know, when you think yeah. about it, what's your take on subject lines? Uh, I mean, I think they're important. They're the first step in getting, um, you know, a reply. Ultimately, if someone's not opening it, you're screwed. Uh, I'll give very simple advice just based off of what's working right now. Uh, two things. One, it, I tend to find that all lowercase subject lines are casual and stick out in an inbox. Uh, two, I use uh, direct reports names if I can and try to tie it into the, the, the email. So uh, I, I already gave an example of Play-Doh, but let's say you're selling something to help like SDR teams like ramp up faster. I would go find an SDR on a manager's team be like ramp time for David or whatever. Uh, if they're familiar with the name, they tend to get much higher uh, open rates at least. Uh, right now we're currently with that method in the 80 to 90% open rates on like first emails or actually no first emails is around 75 to 80. And then across the sequence, we're getting close to like 90% opens. Wow. That's killer. Um, and then obviously the first sentence I think is also very important. The, the one that previews. Yep. So no wasting time with like, hope you're well, any of that stuff. I try to completely eliminate I and we, uh, work like type language and making it about me in any way. And that's as simple as like, Hey, noticed instead of saying, hi, I noticed that you're building, uh, this, I'd be like, noticed, uh, you're building your team around, uh, David and Amy. Yeah. That, that's like a simple first sentence. When you think about AB testing, the first time you create a sequence, let's say, what are, what are you AB testing? What are the sequence of things that you would tend to AB test? Um, the very first thing that we usually test, and I, I don't try to, by the way, run too many AB tests at any given time. Cause then it's not an AB test anymore. If you, if you run too many, <laughs> it becomes an ABCD EFG test. <laughs> yeah. First of all, like as I took statistics in university, like uh, you can only, you have to control for everything, but one variable for it to be an AB test, like by definition, yep. which means yep. that everything has to be the same except for one thing that the thing you're testing. Um, so usually for us, it's like, the first thing that I'm usually adjusting is going to be the current or the, the future state sentence. Mm -hmm. I want to see if like, if, if that story is the one that actually resonates. Um, 
And then what we'll typically do an AB test, like on the first email, run two different uh, variations and let that run for a couple of hundred at the very least. And then I tend to, the other really important email is the, that second use case uh, manual email again, which is technically the fourth email. So those are the two first things I'm, I'm testing. And then uh, after, after the actual content side of things, we'll probably do uh, subject lines just to see if we can like drastically improve that. Yeah. Current state, future state, lowercase subject lines. I find a lot of success with that too. The using the names things is pretty interesting. I have heard people talk about that. They talk to the folks over at Lead IQ. And they do that when they reach out to people. They put SDRs names in the subject line in the first uh, sentence of the email. Um, dude, we are out of time, my man. <laughs> I got a. This is this has been a. Uh, this is really cool because I love talking shop with people like you, and I could just I could talk all day about this stuff, dude. Um, I got a couple kind of fun rapid fire questions for you, though. You ready? Sure. So, um, and this is pertaining to outbound. So if you had to choose, not that we ever have to, but just for fun, if you had to choose between phone, email, and social, what do you pick and why? Uh, for me, I, I'm a little bit biased just because like I love writing uh, and, and copywriting in general. So I'm going to say email. Uh, Dave Gearhart says this too. He's like, uh, copywriting is sales at scale. I think if you can do it really well, um, you just have the option to like really exponentially get results. Um, so I would choose that if I had to, but again, I think it's important that I use all three together. Mm -hmm. What is something you believe about outbound that most would disagree with? Uh, that personalization is important uh, in an email, like specific to that person. Knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to yourself as a rookie sales professional? Uh, no one has their shit figured out. Not even VPs, C-level executives. They're just human beings. There's no reason to be scared of talking to them. I love that. I love that. Um, make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you're listening on Spotify or Apple. You know, podcasts, leave us a review, all of that kind of good stuff. And Florin, before you take off, where can people go to connect with you? You got tons of great content that you post on a regular basis. Where can people connect with you and learn more about what you're up to? Yeah. Uh, the main place that I post is uh, LinkedIn. So Florian Tertulia on LinkedIn. I also just launched my newsletter prospecting from the trenches. Um, you know, I, I'm someone that's an operator, like I'm still prospecting to this day and uh, just sharing findings with people based off of data. So uh, please subscribe to that as well. You can find it in my featured section uh, on my LinkedIn profile.